Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Rohit Mittal, co-founder and CEO of Stilt, a Y Combinator-backed company that has raised $275 million in a combination of debt and equity. Rohit has extensive experience in the credit risk analytics and data science space, having spent several years building fraud models for top U.S. banks. In his current role, he defines the overall business strategy, leads fundraising efforts, and leads product development for the company. Prior to founding Stilt, Rohit started his career at Verisk Analytics using big data to optimize credit risk. He went on to become the founding member of the data science team at PopSugar, where he helped the company build its analytics framework for data science efforts. In this episode, we discuss Rohit's personal difficulties renting an apartment in New York City without a credit history, going from a side project to a startup at Y Combinator, credit risk modeling for immigrants, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Rohit, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I'm very excited to get to talk to you. Uh, where are you calling in from? Hey, Anirudh, thanks for having me. I'm based in San Francisco, so I live and work in downtown San Francisco and been here for the last eight years. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Uh, so let's just jump right into it. And for listeners that may not know, could you give an overview of your career to date and uh, how you became involved in fintech? Uh, for sure. So I moved to the U.S. about 10, 11 years ago as a grad student at Columbia University in New York. And after I graduated, I worked in credit risk industry for a couple of years. So I was mainly consulting all the banks and large banks on their credit risk portfolio. So building credit risk models for them. That was my first job prior to school. I wanted to work in tech, not a lot of tech in New York eight years ago. So I moved to the Bay Area and worked at a company called PopSugar. And there I worked as a part of growth team as a data scientist. So we did a whole bunch of stuff to increase PopSugar's growth. It was a Sequoia-backed company, uh, did fairly well. And then as I was doing that, I got together with my roommate from Colombia, funnily enough, who uh, had moved to the Bay Area to work at Amazon. Uh, we got together and started working on a side project, which eventually became the company we co-founded and have been working on for the past few years. So yeah, my journey went from being an international student to being a co-founder over a period of four or five years. We'll talk about that company that you co-founded in a second. We'll bury the lead for a little bit longer. But can you talk a little bit about your role as a data scientist and uh, how you think that kind of helped you structure a fintech product now? Yeah, for sure. So when I moved to Columbia, one of my goals was to become a quantitative analyst at a hedge fund like everyone else. So I, I studied a lot of operations research, so optimization uh, and things like those. And in addition to finance, I also two levels of CFA because uh, everyone else was doing it. And I just got a fair bit of understanding of finance and data science. And when I went in my uh, first role after Columbia at the company, we actually dealt with big data uh, before it was popularized as big data. So we were dealing with petabytes of data. We used to work with credit reports from all the credit bureaus, data from banks, transaction-level data from Visa and MasterCard. So we, we really dealt with large-scale data sets, and we had to just generate insights from that data. And I got super involved into consumer credit risk and understanding that for the broad U.S. consumer base. So that's also where I learned a whole bunch about how bank thinks about credit risk. And from there on, I moved in a completely different direction to work at PopSugar because I wanted to work in tech. And PopSugar was a women's media online pop culture magazine. 
And uh, going from building credit risk models, I, I uh, went to build models to uh, predict conversion rates or, you know, uh, trying to convert more shoppers online on PopSugar. And that gave me a really good understanding of growth at, at a fast, early stage growth startup. And there we use the same principles of data science applied to a very different industry, uh, which was online shopping and uh, pop culture magazine. So that gave me like a holistic overview of data science. I also became a full stack, mediocre full stack developer. So I didn't, I don't have academic computer science background, but being a data scientist, I had to just learn everything. So all of those things helped in the next phase of my career, which is uh, doing my company. So you've described a little bit of a winding path from uh, wanting to work in quantitative finance at a hedge fund to work as a data scientist at a women's magazine and then becoming a founder. Uh, I would love to hear a little bit more about those initial conversations you had with your ex-roommate and how that evolved into into starting Stilt. Yeah, so there were a lot of conversations, actually. Uh, we it Stilt was not the first idea we worked on. We worked on a whole bunch of, we always call them side projects, and we just built something uh, to see if people are going to use it. And amongst all the ideas that we worked on, uh, we also worked on like trying to optimize earnings for gig economy workers. We worked on peer-to-peer credit score company like Airbnb and others, like where you can share your homes or your cars. We thought, can you share your credit score in a way that you can support someone and get paid for your good credit score if you are not using it and then still or like at the time that company would be the middleman and try to match make people with good credit scores and bad credit scores so you can actually sponsor them as we were working on these ideas i started looking at my idea book so i always keep an idea book where i'm writing a whole bunch of different random ideas uh, that i get as i'm working on something and i found this old idea there where i was trying to increase the number of students moving to the US for for education by creating a nonprofit fund where people who have already moved here and and now are earning can contribute to that fund that will help bring more people, more of these great international students to the US or these bright minds to the US. And then when they start working, they will contribute to the pool. So the pool will continuously get bigger and it will operate like a nonprofit to bring all these talented people who can't come to the U.S. because of financial reasons. And from from that idea, it evolved into, can we use data to just make make it better so we can assess someone's credit risk uh, without a credit score? And we actually built a risk model to predict their credit risk, and we tried to go and sell it to companies. We were very confident in our credit uh, risk model, but nobody bought it. Nobody wanted to put their money behind it. And that's when my co-founder, and kudos to him, he said, I'll put my money behind this credit risk model. So he was the first person who then became like, quote unquote, a lender to international uh, graduate students. And that's how, that's when we registered the company and that's how uh, the company started. So we kind of used all of our experiences, our personal experience of being an international student and facing challenges, my experience in credit risk and data science and his experience in building technology to come up with this. And most importantly, his money to start the company. So we put our own money on the line and uh, started the company. So the the three to four uh, business ideas that you mentioned, all of which sound very interesting, all kind of revolve around this this credit score question, and specifically with the U.S. I'm curious why that's an issue or a problem that you 
decided to target. Um, is there anything that you faced in particular uh, with the U.S. credit score that made this kind of noteworthy for you? Uh, totally, yeah. That was actually our own personal experience. So when I moved to the U.S. and as that student at Columbia, I actually could not rent an apartment in New York. So anyone who's not lived in New York, New York has like, I don't know, some weird rules about renting places and they want credit score, credit reports, or like 40 times monthly rent as income type of requirement. And I didn't have any of those. So I was actually sleeping on a Columbia alum's couch for multiple weeks and couldn't find a landlord who could who could offer me an apartment. And that was a very nice couch, but it was still like sleeping on someone's couch. But there was one person eventually who offered me a room in his apartment. And that person eventually became my co-founder. And he gave me a room without any of those things because he had gone through the same problem. Other people living in the apartment had gone through the same problem. Later, we found out, I realized everyone is going through the same problems and there was no solution. So this problem was personal to us and we had seen the need at least amongst the people that we knew. And the need was very clear without any solution. So we tried to work towards that need or tried to solve that problem. And it eventually evolved into a much broader vision uh, for the company. Yeah, renting in New York was difficult enough for me with an SSN and with parents in the country. <laughs> it could kind of be, you know, co-signers, but I, I, I can't even imagine how hard it must have been as like the first place you moved to in the United States. So that's a really incredible story. Can we talk a little bit about how the idea continued to get fleshed out? Um, I, I would imagine that working with Y Combinator helped with that a bit. Uh, can you talk about that time with Y Combinator? Sure. Uh, so the idea, we were just in this phase of trying a lot of different things until my co-founder actually said that he's going to put the first dollar down for the company. I said, I, I'm not going to put my first dollar down to lend to uh, students uh, or like international graduate students on the internet and he said like he believes in this so much that he will get the first dollar and then when we went through his savings and then we went through my savings so we both put in like dispersed our savings to international students and with that progress we actually applied to y combinator and we were totally not expecting to get in but we got in and then that made the side project into a real startup because now we had money from Y Combinator and we had uh, YC partners who were helping us and that changed everything for us. Uh, that's uh, if I can very confidently say if YC were not there, our startup, our side project would not have survived. We learned everything about building startups, running startups, pitching to investors, raising funding, hiring, and just how things work because of YC. And there was a lot of uh, support available for anything that we wanted to do. Funnily enough, uh, Paul Buchheit, who's the creator of Gmail, he actually became our first big debt investor for Stealth. And it was YC partners, our partners, Dalton and Aaron Harris, who convinced him, who convinced Paul Buchheit to give us money. And I, I could not have like imagined in a million years that that would happen. So YC helped us in, in a ton of ways in, in learning and also in terms of money in validating our startup, which helped with our visa applications later on. So uh, we couldn't have worked on the startup full-time if, if it were not for YC. Because you are offering loans or uh, lines of credit to immigrants, you can't rely on the same credit score data that, that other companies can. What mm -hmm. kind of data does still use to kind of offset that, that uh, data disadvantage that you have? Yeah, what we realized in our 
understanding of the market is at the start, immigrants are a self-selected high quality population that's moving to the US. So the, the group itself has jumped through a lot of hoops to move here. They are trying to build a better life for themselves. They are trying to make a new life and actually work hard. And that's why they, they have moved to the US. And that thing is itself a positive selection uh, for the population. Keeping that aside, we rely a lot on alternative data, including education, both in the U.S. and previous countries, employment, both in the U.S. and previous countries, and immigration status-related data, why they are here, how long are they going to stay, and a whole bunch of factors related to that. We also try to use any financial information that we may have about them in the U.S. So as they open a bank account, as they do transactions on a debit card or something like that. So we take a holistic view of this individual and then we predict how this individual is going to do in the future, even if they don't have any credit score. And as a combination of these things, we determine their credit risk. And I probably should have asked this question first, but what kinds of products do you offer uh, your customers? As of now, we uh, offer unsecured personal loans for up to $35,000 to anyone moving to the U.S. They can get the product on day one of their arrival. So we truly help you get started on day one. Like you can land on the way to your apartment or something. You can actually apply for a loan and get approved by the time you're there. Very cool. And are there uh, particular customer segments where you've seen greater adoption uh, versus others? And are there like areas that you're trying to grow into? Yeah. Um, so we now we have done... Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of loans to tens of thousands of immigrants from 160 different countries who are in the U.S. We see incredible adoption amongst South Asian communities, India, Philippines, uh, and, and other countries there, Latin American countries, Mexico, and others. African countries are the third biggest, then Canada, the U.K., and then other European countries. Anyone who's in the U.S. on some sort of status, and this can be refugees, asylum applicants, DACA holders. We see incredible adoption amongst uh, those consumers. And moving forward, we are just trying to make our product as accessible as possible, even to undocumented folks or even to folks who are lower income or, or make money in cash or in checks uh, kind of thing. So, so that's where we spend a lot of our time on how can we improve the access to as many folks as possible. And I saw that Stilt has raised a decent amount of uh, debt and equity. Um, mm-hmm. Talk through like this this fundraising process. Any any learnings you had along the way, um, and if you have you know any plans for for what you're going to be doing with that capital over the next uh, few months, few years. Sure, uh, raising debt is one of the hardest things we learned, and this was one of the feedbacks to us during Y Combinator that we need to learn how to raise debt. And I think we got really good at it because we took that feedback to heart and we're like, we're going to raise a lot of debt. So we raised uh, about quarter billion dollars in debt facilities with just seven and a half million in equity until a couple of years ago. And the way we were able to do this is we, when we dispersed loans, we got paid back really quickly and we were able to prove that the consumers we are lending to are actually lower risk on on a comparable basis to U.S. citizens because it's a self-selected population uh, that's moving to the U.S. I mean, uh, and I should clarify, we don't discriminate based on immigration status. We also lend to U.S. uh, citizens, whoever applies to us. Uh, It's just that they have so many other options that they don't generally come to us. But if they come to us, we treat them the same way. And 
what we realized was that the need in the market is much bigger. So we started with the lowest risk segment, and now we are continuously just trying to deploy that debt capital to as many immigrants as possible. And when we started, 100% of our customer base was Indian, and now it's we have touched customers from 160 different countries, and we'll continue to do so. Just increase more deployment, increase uh, the number of customers we serve, give them more money, give them money sooner, and give them money at lower rates. So we are trying to uh, just improve the the cost of capital for for our end consumers. How do you go about targeting your customers, especially since they're going to be coming from all over? I mean, you you painted a a wonderful picture of uh, someone flying into the United States and getting their loans on the flight over. Uh, but I have to imagine it's a little bit hard to like find that person. So how do you tackle keeping your customer acquisition costs down and keeping profitability uh, kind of at a reasonable margin? True. One insight that I had about fintech, especially B2C fintech from the early days, and I'm, I'm fairly strongly opinionated on this, is like it's it's as much of a distribution game as it is underwriting game. So you need to figure out your unique distribution channel first. And that distribution channel kind of decides the type of customers you're going to get. So if you're doing direct mail, which is a common way of acquiring customers, everyone receives those credit card offers and loan offers in mail. Like That defines the boundaries of credit risk that you can get. If you're doing Google ads, Facebook ads, those define the boundaries. So I knew that we cannot go and compete in the same channels as everyone else was competing. So we took a different route. We actually started our blog and started writing a lot of content focused on immigrants, not just immigrants who are looking for loans, but immigrants in general, because we want, our mission is to make immigrants successful. So we write about anything and everything that we think can help immigrants. And that actually turned out to be an extremely differentiated way of uh, acquisition because everyone else was acquiring through other channels and they, they could not build content platform. Uh, that was attracting tens of millions of unique visitors every year to the site. So we get 10 million plus unique visitors to Stills blog content every year. And many of them actually end up converting to customers, maybe not on the first visit, but they get to know about us. They get to know that this company exists. So we are essentially just fighting ignorance. And the more people get to know about us, the product is very obvious and they end up becoming our customers. So that's the uh, cornerstone of our acquisition that helps us keep our acquisition costs low. And aside from that, we have a very strong customer referral rate. So anyone who takes a loan from us, like all immigrants know each other anyways. So they go and tell their friends. And on average, like I think 50% of our customers have referred at least one of their friends. And uh, that's a very strong referral rate for a product that's debt. Like nobody goes and says, friend, take this Chase Sapphire credit card with my uh, unique code or something like that, or take a student loan because I took a student loan kind of thing. But in our group, we see a very strong customer referral rate because of immigrant communities are dense. So these two are the, these are the two main uh, components of our acquisition. And then we do the normal stuff of Google ads, Facebook ads. And now we are doing YouTube influencer partnerships with immigrants. So any, if you go to an immigrant YouTube channel, you'll hear about Stealth or you'll see Stilt uh, there because it's just such a good match. Uh, so that is also now increasingly becoming a very good acquisition channel. Yeah, I'm definitely very familiar with both with the power of a strong media engine and with the uh, 
closeness of an immigrant community. Zooming out just a little bit, I would love to get your perspective on the dynamics within lending to immigrants in the U.S. versus lending to immigrants in other countries in the world. Is it a similar system around the world that you've seen? Is there opportunity for expansion for Stilt um, to other countries that have like the same dynamics? Most of the developed countries have kind of developed in the same way. So I think Canadian system works similarly. The U.K. system works similarly. Europe works slightly differently. Uh, so there are countries where the system is directly applicable and we have built one type of risk model, we can build different types of risk models and then this expand to other countries. The goal is that if we have touched someone in the US and they move to Canada, either because of visa issues or something else, they shouldn't have to do everything again. They shouldn't have to build credit again and still should be there to help them even when they move to a different country. So all the developed countries where the credit system looks similar to US, it's very easy to translate that. And wherever it doesn't look like the US, we need to develop new credit systems so that we can be better, faster, cheaper than the alternatives out there. And I can attest to that because I used to live in Germany and then I lived in London. So I've actually seen this story play out slightly differently multiple times. And a country like Germany or, or some other countries are not very debt heavy, but U.S. is. The U.S. is the largest credit economy in the world. U.K. is also uh, pretty high up there. Canada operates the same way. Some other countries don't operate that way. So in some countries, it'll be a different system, but in other developed countries, we can just translate what we have here. Incredible. Let's continue to zoom out for a little bit. Now, I'd love to get some of your perspectives on the fintech industry overall. You mentioned like some strong opinions on B2C fintech. I, I would just love to hear what you're excited about, uh, what you're hoping to see develop over the next three to five years within fintech. Yeah, my main hope uh, with fintech, and, and I think it's definitely going to play out this way, is that the that access to financial products is faster, cheaper, more seamless for consumers. And it's either going to happen with like standalone independent uh, fintech companies or fintech company or every tech company becoming a fintech company of sorts. And I see that trend uh, happening not just in the US, but across the world. And if we look at a couple of different types of products and then a couple of different types of companies. So at least in terms of cost of origination and the cost of capital for consumers for the same type of risk consumer has gone down. And it started with companies like Lending Club, and now a lot of different lenders across the spectrum are offering lower rates than what, what consumers would get from others. And technology is enabler of that, right? And you can look at a company like Robinhood, investments is now, doing investments is cheaper, faster uh, than it was before. You can look at a product like International Money Transfer, uh, which is cheaper than 10 years before. Now, average cost to transfer money across the world is 6.5% compared to 12% just 10 years ago. And TransferWise, Remitly, and some others are the OGs of, of that trend. If you look at developing countries now, more people have access to financial products because of mobile penetration and they get, get access. More people can get access. It's cheaper, it's faster, and it's more streamlined. So I expect this trend to just accelerate in the near future. And we can't miss the big 800 pound gorilla in the room, which is crypto enabling all of these in some form or fashion. Uh, like Facebook is doing uh, international money transfer US and Guatemala using crypto and through other partnerships. And I think these types of partnerships will continue. Tech companies will continue to provide products, financial products to, to the broader population. Apple launching Apple Card, 
uh, Amazon partnering with a firm with Buy Now Pillar, like all these innovations are just pointing towards faster, cheaper, instant access at lower cost. And I think this is a trend that's not going to reverse in my understanding. We have so many guests on this show and everyone has such diverse background. Um, but whenever I ask this question, it's pretty much uh, a similar answer <laughs> that like yeah. uh, everyone's kind of driven by that same goal, whether it's B2B or B2C, they want to make financial services faster, cheaper and more accessible. Um, so that's I love hearing that. But a slightly harder question is, are there any sectors within fintech that you think might be a little bit overhyped right now? Or maybe there's a, a lot of different startups in the space and you're curious to see which ones uh, will win out. Yeah, that's always uh, difficult to answer. I feel like there's one sector, crypto, which is kind of underhyped in some ways. Like there are some areas where I feel like their implementation will actually transform industries and other areas where I think they will come down. They'll still be around, but they won't be as uh, popular as they were before and they'll, they'll come to a happy medium. And that's also like an easy answer because there's just so much happening all the time uh, in crypto. Uh, but I truly feel like there are opportunities that are underhyped in crypto, especially around global remittance. And I know like there's like the fee is just doesn't make it easy or uh, cheap to transfer. But over time, I think those fees are going to come down and it's not discussed enough. Coinbase is doing it. I saw a company that A16Z funded that's doing international transfer and the Facebook is doing. I think it's it's going to be a massive game changer if we can reduce the cost of global money transfer and crypto is uh, underhyped for that. And in some areas, whether it's NFT or something like that, I think it's overhyped. It cannot continue to grow at 10,000% per year for the next 10 years. It, it, it will uh, die or uh, slow down at some point and I average out. Crypto is a great answer for both both sides of this question. I think slightly before your episode airs, we'll air an episode with Cello, which, and I'm very excited about the potential for crypto for cross-border payments. At the same time, I'm, I'm on, I was on Twitter an hour ago and I'm seeing someone pay like gas fees of like $1,000 to buy part of the U.S. Constitution and I have absolutely no oh, idea wow. what, what, <laughs> what that means. Um, so uh, it's a good answer for both sides of the question. The last thing I wanted to do today was switch to a rapid-fire round of questions. We hope to get answers here in 10 seconds or less. Uh, you ready to go? Okay. Sure. Let's do it. So first question, when you're not working, how do you like to spend your time? I'm always working, so <laughs> there's nothing else I do. Uh, but if I'm not working, I, I, I spend time uh, reading and then just uh, traveling. Good segue to the next question. Uh, what is your favorite book? Difficult to choose, but by the, because of the number of times I've read this book on writing well, is my favorite book. I've read it like oh. six, seven times. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. Uh, what was the last movie you watched? Dune. Ah, was it good? Yeah, I loved it. I liked it. Um, I actually had booked tickets to go to the theater and then I saw it's an HBO movie, so I had to cancel my tickets and I watched it at home. Yeah, that's on my list as well. Uh, what interview question do you always ask? Uh, tell me about the most difficult project you worked on. That's, I think, the only question I ask, and every question just flows from there. Is there a most difficult project that you worked on that comes to mind? Starting Stilt is my most difficult project to date. Uh, and last question is, what does success look like for you in Stilt? And, and feel free to take a little bit longer on this one. Uh, sure. So uh, for me, so we achieved certain milestones within the company today, which I announced to the team today. Obviously, uh, can't share it publicly, but these milestones were 
like when we started the company, I could not have imagined that we would achieve these milestones. And this is just like the amount of impact we are having on consumers' lives. Historically, or like maybe a couple of years ago, we did a study and we, we saw that we have, because of our loans, uh, we have helped people earn $200 million in additional lifetime income because they could stay in the U.S. Because we gave them a loan, they could stay in the U.S. and then earn a ton of money. Or we helped students graduate or we, we helped families in some form or fashion. So when we see the type of impact we are making, I feel that our work is not done and it it won't be done for a really long period of time. And so we want to see a lot of impact on immigrants moving to the US. They should get services as fast, as high quality, as low cost as anyone else. So we, we are going to be constantly pushing the boundary on that and I don't think there's going to be a stopping point for us. And once we do that, we'll want to do the same thing for everyone else. And success for us, for me particularly, is just means that more hard work and more impact, positive impact on people's lives, financial or non-financial. I can't imagine there's a better source of motivation for the company or for employees than to hear a stat like $200 million in additional lifetime income. That's very impressive. Uh, I wish you the best of luck in the next 200 million. Uh, I'm sure it'll come through a lot faster than the first one. Um, And I think that's probably a perfect place for us to end our conversation today. So uh, Rohit, thank you so much for joining the show. Incredible stories about founding Stilt, incredible impact that you've made so far. Uh, And thank you again for coming. Yeah, totally. And thanks for having me. And thanks for uh, just uh, allowing me to share the story of Stilt with the broader world. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Wharton FinTech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.